This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 32. I have a few friends around the country who are trail runners. And after 43 years of intentionally not running, I decided in January I would give it a try. When I began, I could barely run a mile without stopping, but I kept at it week by week. I trained for a 5K and then a 10K, and well, frankly, I've grown to love it so much, I'm now training to run barefoot across America, (laughs) uphill, both ways, in the snow. (laughs) There's a saying in trail running, if you fall on the street, you're embarrassed. If you fall on the trail, you laugh. It's expected that you will fall. Well, I was cruising down a trail this week when all of a sudden I felt the full force of uh, masculine weight (laughs) pulling me down to the ground. It was like I was falling in slow motion, though I I saw the dirt that my hands were about to sink in, and um, I saw the stone where my knees were about to knock. I wasn't embarrassed, and I didn't laugh. The only sound that rang through the trees that day was one violent oomph. (laughs) Other than some bloody knees and scraped shins, I was just fine. As we've been traveling through the book of Exodus, everything has felt like a downhill run with a cool breeze on our back. The path that God had marked for Israel took them out of captivity right through the Red Sea, guided them through the wilderness where God provided for everything they needed. He led them to Mount Sinai where He covenanted with them and promised His presence to dwell in their midst. Every seeming transition, it seems it gets better and better. However, as we reach the mile marker that is Exodus 32, all of a sudden the gravitational force of sin pulls Israel down right into the Sinai sand. They fall. The fall results in much more than embarrassment. It leaves no one laughing. Rather, they find themselves standing in need of rescue once again. If this were the first time that we were reading the story of Exodus This would, in all likelihood, knock us back on our heels. Yet most of us will experience this passage in a different way because you'll no doubt be familiar with this unforgettable scene. And so I want to encourage us not to approach this passage like a trail that we could run with our eyes closed. No, let's ask the Lord to speak to us and perhaps even knock us back on our heels so that we might fall together into his merciful arms. At the center of this passage beats a question for you and me today. Are there any idols in your heart that have taken the place of God? The story of the golden calf recorded in Exodus 32 is one of the darkest corners of the Bible. 
It's here Israel breaks the newly sealed covenant that they have made to be God's people, for Him alone to be their God. But before the ink has had time to dry, they deny God. They forge an idol and even hold a worship service in its honor. Yet, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. His love will not let them go, and He will still show them great mercy. We will look at our text under three headings. First, the fall of Israel. Second, the act of repentance. And third, the need for atonement. I'm going to break up the passage into three readings, so please just keep your seat if you would this morning and stand in your hearts every time God's word is read. Beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in their ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The first section of our passage details, verses 1 to 14, the fall of of Israel. Exodus 32 is Israel's version of Genesis 3. It is their fall. Let's examine how they fell and ended up committing this great sin. It's called multiple times 
in our text. Well, first, they disobeyed the word of God. The Lord had clearly spoken to them about specific things. Yet here in one scene, at least three of the Ten Commandments are broken at the same time. The first commandment said they should have no other gods. Yet the people ask Aaron to make them gods who would go before them. The second commandment prohibited making graven images to be worshipped. Yet here stands a shimmering golden calf forged in the fire and now brought offerings of worship. The third command stated not to take the name of the Lord God in vain. However, in verse 5, Aaron takes the holy name of God. Notice it's Lord, all caps, Yahweh. And he just tosses it on this inanimate object like a dirty old rag. The construction and worship of this golden calf was blatant disobedience to the word of God. They also doubted the goodness of God. There is a tension that stretched in the opening sentence of the chapter as the people wonder why Moses is delayed. He's delayed. While we have had the benefit of overhearing the conversation between God and Moses at the top of Mount Sinai over these last few chapters, those waiting down below are worried. They're worried they may never see Moses again at all. Rather than trusting in God's good promises, rather than waiting on God's perfect timing, they make an idol. I believe it's twofold. One, they wanted comfort from their anxiety. But second, people forged these idols in order to control deities. They believed they could control God through the worship of this idol. They doubted the goodness of God. Third, they forgot the works of God. In verse 4, they attribute the mighty work of God in rescuing them from slavery to this little golden idol less than a day old. These are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, they say. But how could they say that? How could they have seen and experienced all these remarkable things that God had done and now spit on his redeeming works? In order to see how the psalmist translates what happens here, you'll need to keep one finger in Psalm 106 for the next couple of moments. In Psalm 106, verse 22, it explains what happened. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome deeds by the Red Sea. God had done these things, they're commanded regularly to remember them, but they had forgotten. And finally, they exchanged the glory of God. Again, Psalm 106, verses 19 and 20, explains in poetry what's happening here in prose. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. What had been promised to the people of Israel? The nearness of God, the wondrous condescension of the Lord himself, his glorious presence among his people. What they choose instead of that is to make an idol of a 
two-stomached animal that mows the lawn with its teeth. How the mighty have fallen. As a result of their sin, God distances himself in verses 7 through 10. Typically, we have seen, as practiced in the book of Exodus, God refers to the Israelites as my people. Yet here, he tells Moses, these are your people. He distances himself. Just like he saw their suffering while in Egypt, back in Exodus chapter 2. Now he sees something different. He sees that they are a stiff-necked people. That's an agricultural term. Uh, This is to be used of an animal who will not obey the will of its master, who goads against what his master wants. This is how God sees Israel. He insists they've been corrupt from within and how quickly they turned aside out of the way God commanded. Remember verse 1? They felt like it had been such a long time. God says, no, no, the way I see it, you have so quickly deserted me and chased after these things. And so, like an echo of Genesis 6, where the Lord regretted making all of mankind, here he seems to regret remaking this people, Israel. He considers consuming them in his righteous anger. And so, Moses the mediator steps into the picture. Verses 11 to 14. He appeals to God on behalf of sinful people. He does this multiple ways. He reminds the Lord of the covenantal relationship with his people. He appeals to the Lord on the basis of his reputation. He rehearses to God the promises that he'd made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He stands in the gap, mediating between God and people. Again, Psalm 106, 23 sings of what happened on that day. Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Perhaps when you come to passages like this, you have conflicting feelings how to translate it, like I do. On one hand, you think, what? How could Israel disobey God's word after hearing it with their own ears? Why doubt God's goodness after all they had received? How could they forget so great a salvation? What was in them that would cause them to exchange the glory of God for something like a man-made calf. But, on the other hand, I see myself in this text. Don't you? We may not carve up golden idols to bow down before, but we too have fallen. Beneath each sin are hearts that disobey the word of God, that doubt the goodness of God, that forget the works of God, that exchanged the glory of God. The fall of Israel was our fall as well. So what do fallen sinners do with their sin? I'm glad you asked. The second section of our passage points to the act of repentance. What I have in view here is chapter 32, 15 to 29, also 33, 1 to 6, which we won't read, but I do want to read 
verses 15 to 29. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And so I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. That day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Moses comes down the mountain with a signed covenant from God. He grabs Joshua. Remember back in chapter 24, Joshua is almost as high up the mountain as Moses, just not as quite. And the lower they go, the darker the scene grows. As they draw near the camp, they hear songs and see dancing. And in the middle of all of the festivities is an idol. And so Moses burns hot with righteous anger. He breaks the tablets, symbolically showing how Israel had broken covenant with God. And then he breaks the idol, bringing this temporary end to their idolatry. He breaks up the party. We see this strange ceremony of him crushing it and scattering the ashes of this gold on the water and them drinking it. We don't know all that's behind that, but we do know it's here and it happened. There's actually a lot of features in this passage we could, we could detour and spend a lot of time in. What I'd like to do is to note two specific things from this chapter that present contrasting responses to sin. Contrasting responses to sin. The first is blame shifting. Blame shifting, which we see in Aaron. 
as his brother confronts him and asks why he brought this great sin upon the people, rather than owning it, rather than just asking for forgiveness, Aaron does everything he can do to avoid blame. Like Adam blamed his wife for eating of the fruit. Like Eve blamed the serpent for her actions. Here, Aaron blames others for his sin. He even has the the nerve to blame the fire. He says, we just threw some gold into the fire and boom, out came this magnificent bull. The problem with that as excuse is Moses uh, happily records in verse 4 where we see that Aaron made this idol with his own hand using a tool. Aaron will not own his sin. Rather, he responds with blame shifting. But notice others repent of their sin. The act of genuine repentance begins with the invitation of Moses. In verse 26, there is an open-armed invitation from Moses asking people to decide, do you want the Lord or do you want to continue in your sin? Do you hear it? Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gather around. Certainly there were more. It's interesting that the Levites are named here. Of course, these are the ones who would attend the temple under the leadership of Aaron, who's now leading them in the false worship of a false god. It was Aaron who led them toward idolatry, and surely others as well, even before he was installed in being the worship leader of Israel. Yet now, everyone is being given a chance to repent and reestablish loyalty to Yahweh's covenant, including Aaron. Notice Aaron doesn't die that day. Just highlighting the mercy of Jesus, the mercy of God. And when we turn to the first six verses of chapter 33, we find the people mourning over what they had done. They take off their jewelry as a sign of repentance and grief. And so in this account of sin, there are two responses. There is, on one hand, blame-shifting, and on the other hand, repentance. When it comes to our sin, we can either blame-shift or we can repent. Let's just circle back to my question from a few moments ago. Are there any idols in your heart that have taken the place of God? No one has helped me think more clearly about that than a pastor and an author named Tim Keller uh, who went to be with Christ this week. And he once wrote this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, that you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So is there a relationship in your life that you value as more important than your relationship with God? Does your career or a hobby absorb your imagination and creative thinking more than your thoughts toward God? Are you looking to a possession or a position to give to you what only the Lord can do? 
Is there anything in your life that if you lost it, life would hardly seem worth living? The Bible calls those idols. If something comes to your mind, I plead with you to respond biblically, to respond by repenting. This little act that we do in our service each week this moment of confession of sin, do you know what we're doing there? We're just coming clean before God in honesty and humility, coming clean, saying we have broken your law and commands and we need forgiveness. So I encourage you, don't blame shift to another person and to a circumstance, to a situation, to an addiction. Own where your sin has grabbed your heart and bring it to Christ. Turn from that thing and turn to Christ to receive forgiveness. Let me particularly speak to those of you who have never believed in Jesus as your Savior. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7, Jesus stands up in a crowd of sinners, not that different than this one, and said, if anyone thirsts, come to me. If anyone thirsts for forgiveness of sin, come Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That invitation is still wide open today. Is your life filthy with sin? Come to Christ. He will cleanse you. The message of the gospel is not clean yourself up and come. It's come on. He will clean you. What are you waiting for? There may not be tomorrow. What are you waiting for? Do you thirst for forgiveness? Lay hold of Christ by faith. Even in this very moment. Who wants to be on the Lord's side? Moses says. Who wants forgiveness of sin? Jesus says. Let us practice the act of repentance and turn to Christ. And finally, we learn of the need for atonement, verses 30 to 35. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. Unless we forget the one that Aaron made. So Moses tells the people how great their sin was. Yet notice his willing heart to go before the Lord on their behalf. He'd stood before Pharaoh on their behalf. Now he stands before God on their behalf. And he tries to make atonement for what they have done. The word atonement means to make right or 
to make clean or to be, in English, we have this great help, to be at one with God, at one meant, once again. And so Moses hikes back up the mountain once again because atonement can only be possible with God if there is forgiveness and if there is a substitutionary sacrifice. Two things are required for atonement, forgiveness and substitutionary sacrifice. So Moses confesses the sin of the people. They have made gods of gold. They deserve punishment. All of them deserve to be killed, yet only less than half a percent were. But Moses asks God for forgiveness. They are repentant over their sin, but they need forgiveness. And so Moses pleads of it. And do you notice his uncertainty here? Perhaps God will forgive you. Just push pause right there. Now read this in light of the New Testament and all that Christ has done for us. Brother, sister in Christ, you don't come before the holy God with your sin and wonder, perhaps will he forgive me? Rather, you look to the cross of Christ where the love of God was shed abroad in our hearts, where full atonement was made for our sins. And we come boldly before the throne of grace. Moses is uncertain how God will handle his people. This is still the early stage of this. But now, where we sit on the timeline of history, of redemption, now we have full confidence. There's not a sin so dark that God will not forgive. So let me say to a room full of people who have disobeyed the word of God, doubted the goodness of God, forgotten the works of God, exchanged the glory of God, though we have sinned, we've been given the remarkable gift of forgiveness. Colossians 2, 14, Christ has canceled the record of debt. Did you walk into the room this morning with a record of debt against a holy God? Hear this good news pronounced over your life. Christ has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How did he do that? He nailed it to the cross. Forgiveness is yours. The final idea from our passage that we'll have time to mention is that of substitution. I want to make sure that you see clearly in the midst of this dark scene filled with Israel's sin, the whisper of substitution. Moses offers up his life as a sacrifice. You see that? As a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He says, God, take my life as a punishment for the sins of Israel. Forgive them and blot me out of the book. Paul says the same thing as he looks upon the same stiff-necked Israel a few thousand years later. He says, if it's possible, God, blot me out and save the people. I'll take death so they might have life. Do you hear the gospel even ringing in that ambition? Of course, the point of Exodus is that Moses was never the hero. Who is? In like 85 sermons in Exodus. Who's the hero of Exodus? Yahweh. Yahweh is. God alone is. So God says, no, Moses, this is, that's not how this works. 
You see, Moses, you are made of earth. You are frail and feeble, from birth born a sinner. And you too, Moses, have broken my law and commands, and so you're not the one who can stand between a holy God and sinful people. I need a better mediator. And so in the fullness of time, God sent his one and only son, the perfect lamb of God, who would climb a hill carrying our sin and our shame, every offense that we've made, and he would take it on himself perfectly. He was the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He was the true and better Moses And he would lay down his perfect life on the altar of Calvary. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned. All we like Israel have gone astray, we've turned. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord, God full of mercy, as we will see next week, has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Exodus 32 warns us of the danger of idolatry. Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 10. He writes, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. These things were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And then in case we miss it, he presses the point home in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What do forgiven people do? They flee from idolatry. In order to earn God's approval? No, no. But because we've been given it. Exodus 32 warns us of the danger of idolatry. It teaches us, by way of contrast, the practice of repentance, genuine repentance, and points us, ultimately, to the one who laid down his life, standing in our place to make atonement for sin. This scene may be one of the darkest in Scripture, but it ends with a bright light of God's mercy. And all of this can be seen in the story of the golden calf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that searches us, that humbles us, that teaches us, that warns us, that equips us, that shows us the perfection of Christ who came because we were fallen who has granted to us the gift of repentance. And has made atonement for our sin. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.